I've been doing the blog since I believe May of 06. That's 2006, not 1906. I know I'm old. And I've done about 6,000 posts in that time. Actually, I've averaged more than one a day. And if you figure 200 words a post, that's probably uh, about a million two words, a million 200,000 words. And I'm probably getting around 75 or 80,000 readers a week. That might be a liberal number, but it's no, um, no less accurate than, than most uh, circulation figures. And with all that, I'll be ha- you'll be happy to know I haven't made a dime. So um, it's all good. It's all good. That's George Tannenbaum, former copy chief in ECD on IBM at Ogilvy, current chief George officer at GeorgeCo, and creator of the industry's most read blog, Ad Aged. And I'm Mark Hartsman, another ad guy, as well as the author of seven books, founder of WeirdHistorian.com and Curious Publications. And right now, your host of Besides Ads, a podcast about the creative things people in advertising do outside of advertising, like George Tannenbaum. Welcome, George. How are you, Mark? Good, thanks. So, a lot of people write blogs. There's probably too many out there. But AdAged has a massive readership. Um, and you've been writing it daily for, like you said, up to, what, 15 years now, I think you Almost just said. Almost 15 years, I think. 14 or 15, yeah. And that's something that most blogs really can't say. So, what got you started and what's been keeping you going? Yes. When I started, you know, in the scheme of things, it was, relatively speaking, the, the early days of the internet. It was 2006 or 2007. And I started it for the most um, basic reasons. Even with a name like George Tannenbaum, I wanted to make sure that my site came up first on my, um, you know, someone did a Google search on me. And it it wasn't at the time. So I said, well, I got to figure out a way to get my name in the top of the results. And then I also, just being a very competitive person, uh, I also noticed uh, around that was around the time every agency um, decided they were going to do a blog. They were going to get into the blogging business and this, that, and the other thing. And what I noticed, or or every agency had said that, let's say, if I started in 2006, they said it in, in around 2005. And I noticed, like most things that agencies do, they start off strong and then they they peter out pretty quickly. So I would go online and see these uh, agency blogs and they hadn't written anything for nine months, 12 months, 14 months, two years. Huh? Well, that's, that's stupid. If you're going to do it, you have to do it. And I, I just decided that if I was going to do this, I was going to take it seriously. And I didn't really know anything about starting a blog. I just started saying, oh, I'll do it every day. And, you know, because that seemed that seemed about right. It didn't seem like it needed to be as precious as journalism or even advertising for that matter. So I just, well, I'm going to write it every day. At, at the very least, that became my my goal was to write every day. And then because, as I said, I'm competitive, I said, well, I want to see if I can write more than one 
one blog a day for an entire year, and I think I got up to 500 one year. I'm, I'm less than that now because I don't write on weekends anymore because I've learned how readership goes. But um, yeah, so I, I just I just kept at it, and then you know I found um, over time as I started to get a following, in many ways it became more important for job seeking than a portfolio because every day. It's a little bit like I have a cardiologist because I'm an old Jewish man. And he said, well, you don't have to do a stress test. You run every day. That's your stress test. And I kind of felt like, well, I don't have to show a portfolio as much as I do my blog every day. That's, that's proof of my writing every day. And that became kind of more of a test case uh, or a proof point than, uh, of course, you still need a portfolio. But it became a way of reminding people that you're alive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the other thing is what I learned through the years, especially with the consolidation of the agency business, I'm, I'm 63. When I started in the business, there were legitimately 50 agencies in New York, at least 50 agencies that you would consider going to. Now, to be a little melodramatic, I'd say there was a dozen. So in days of yore, you know, you could call agency one on Monday wait two weeks, call agency one again. You could just keep calling agencies if you were looking for work. Now, you seriously need a touch strategy. Like if I, if I call agency orange on the first of the month, I can't call them again for another three months. So if you're looking for work, how do you stay in front of people without being a nudge? Because you don't want to call people. People get angry. So this was my way of kind of jumping the line, to tell you the truth. And saying, here I am, and without having to make a phone call. I don't like making phone calls. And I, I imagine it's obviously it's been successful for you so far, correct? In terms of achieving those goals you just mentioned. You know, it's at this point, I mean, it's almost a little embarrassing sometimes because people treat me like, you know, I'm somewhat of a ad celebrity and I never thought of myself that way. I've never been the biggest award winner, never even been, you know, the chief creative officer um, or haven't been since 2005 uh, when I guess I peaked. But, you know, it keeps me busy and everyone knows my name. I mean, across uh, really like two and a half continents, uh, depending on what you count Australia and New Zealand as. So um, and Micronesia, don't forget Micronesia. I'm very mm. big in Micronesia. Um, so, you know, it's kept me kind of illuminated in an industry where there's no real or or there's fewer and fewer superstars. People always ask me how I find time to write on the side. Um, but you're doing this every day for 15 years consistently. Do you get people asking you those questions as well? And, and what do you tell them? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of a natural question because people say, you know, I don't know how you do it. And, you know, some of my some of my writing, I think it's fairly sophisticated, you know, and at least for a copywriter, well thought out. But it's really there's a couple of things. Number one is, you know, I decided early on that I was going to treat it like exercise. I was going to treat the act of writing like the act of exercise you have to do it every day for it to matter. I mean, it's just, you don't have to run a marathon every day, but you have to go for a walk every day. You have to get your um, apocryphal 10,000 steps. You have to be moving every day. You have to do the same thing with writing. I mean, your your brain is a muscle. You have to exercise it. So 
you know, the idea, maybe it's a, it's a emblem of my old schoolness because Mark, as you know, we worked with them. Uh, you, you can work with writers who really can't write. Um, that might be okay if you're working on, you know, a heavily heavy duty broadcast account, but I've always worked on things that are more kind of, um, more detail driven, more, I'd say technically driven, uh, either finance, um, the more technical side of cars or, uh, technology itself. And, you know, you have to get in practice if you're going to write, you know, in much the same way that I think people of my generation wish we still did tissue or marker comps, you know, but now we go right to a tight comp. I think clients now have a greater expectation that not only are you going to have a tight comp, you're going to have copy written. So you have to get in the habit of being faster than we might have been. I mean, certainly faster than I was 25 years ago, because for a comp, sometimes to sell an idea, to get a client excited, you have to have copy. So sit down and write your copy. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I do. I just got in the habit of making writing very important that it's a, that it's a big, it's a big part of what we do. We, we break things down for people and explain them to people. And you can't, you need words to do that. It's so true how fast paced everything has gotten. I, I often look back when I started my career and I remember having like, like two weeks to write a few print ads, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and now it's like, and, and that doesn't happen at all anymore. Now it's just like you said, I, I, yeah. full copy comps, you know, campaign to a day and a half. I mean, it's, it's yeah. crazy. And some people I think still hold to the um, preciousness of the industry that says, no, I need X amount of time to write it. And you, you just don't get it. I mean, Mark, I, I remember sitting in the brand room with you and I was always kind of off to one side on IBM and you and Rich or some other teams would be spinning out commercials and somebody would come to me and say, we need an eight page insert. And they didn't just need like, oh, yeah, we'll put a picture of a kid here and then a box over here and somebody else over there. They needed freaking copy on eight pages. There's no brief. And, you know, the the 220 pound guy with the muscles is standing over me, breathing through his mouth. It's like, all right, I'm going to write this fucking thing. So, you know, I don't know what alternative there is, really. And, you know, certainly um, until that Schmogelvy died. You know, that was that was an asset. That was something that clients needed. Um, I think they still need it. They just agencies are afraid to offer it because no one can do it. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I hear what you're saying about maintaining the muscle and, and getting in that rhythm and always being able to continue writing and really making it feel very natural by keeping it up every day. That said, like I know that still doing this every single day, you've got your Uncle Slappy's one-liners, you've got your your really funny interviews with the chiefs of whatever that, that I always love when you do those. Um, but so you can kind of use those as like a go-to if you're sort of stuck without right. a, a great piece of wisdom, because you've always got such great wisdom to impart on the whole ad industry. But are there ever times where you, you just find yourself a little stuck? Like, Oh gosh, I don't know what I'm going to write today, but I got to get something. Yeah. I mean, that happens. It probably happens, you know, twice a month. But again, it's like anyone who's been any sort of an athlete, whether you're a skier or a recreational runner or a tennis player, or I know you do, you know, competitive uh, juggling and things like that. You just you just get up and start doing it. 
and sometimes you start typing about a walk along the beach or playing with your dog or you know uh, an encounter you had you know trying to get a bagel in the morning and it segues into something on customer service or something but you just you know it's a little bit of it is and i actually think there might be a bigger a, a bigger thing going on here that has hurt the ad industry you know, I have a lot of friends pretty high up in the ad industry. And with one of them, I always say, you know, it really seems like journalism has adjusted much better to the digital age than the advertising industry. We're still doing 300 by 250 banners. And the New York Times is doing these involved things with 100 photographs and sound files and and moving images and this, that and the other thing. And they're incredible. And, you know, we pass them along in the office. We don't do anything like that in the ad industry. And my nutshell for that is to say, well, you know, journalism industry is fighting for clicks and the ad industry isn't anymore. The ad industry takes their clicks for granted. And, you know, the journalism industry is fighting for clicks in in that if your article goes up at eight and by 11, you don't have any clicks, you change the headline. I mean, that's, that's what you do. I mean, I guess we would call it uh, programmatic or something or DOC or, or uh, I don't even know what that stands for, but they seem to be very acute. The journalists, journalists, they seem to be very acute about fighting for that primacy on the page. And we seem more, um, uh, we seem to have more lassitude about it. And, um, you know, part of that, I think, comes from not being as fervid about writing, trying something every day. I mean, the weird thing, as you know, from weird historian or from anything else you do on a fairly regular basis, there's sometimes you think, oh man, this is going to take off. This is going to be like crazy. And you get nothing. And other times you feel like you just mailed it in and it goes crazy. I've definitely found that. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't, and, and I'm sure if you're a stand up comedian, you go, God, I bombed tonight. And then everybody's doing, he said it's purple and it, it takes off and it's a meme and, you know, um, everybody's doing it. And, and, you know, that wasn't even funny, but it's it's kind of the regularity, I think, is just like I think that's a little bit what you have to do. And I know the privilege of of the ad business pre holding companies was and and I used to say this a lot was is one of the few jobs in the world where if you're working with Rich you can come in in the morning and say uh, Rich gets in you get in around nine thirty Rich gets in around nine thirty you have your cup of coffee it's ten fifteen you know you feel like working now nah, I got this stuff to do it's the only job in the world where you can feel like working hey there's a fire down on on Maple you feel like gonna get it nah um um you know the the wife wants me to pick up some sumo oranges it's like you can't do that in any other job and our job is well yeah i'll do it later it's like no get in do your work write your shit and push it out there i guess one of the things that that you know really annoys the fuck out of me is when people start talking about the campaigns they're going to do like theoretically write a script and draw a picture and show it to me and then we can talk about it like, I don't want to hear how, you know, you can have a juggling frog and he's going to come in and that's going to make the, you know, the linkage between, you know, Imperial Margarine. I, I don't, I want to see the commercial. I want to see me. the juggling frog. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I think, 
it's funny because in my humble opinion, the people I've always got along best with in the business, and I would include, you know, you and Rich and the, some of the people we worked with on IBM, like the better people, they definitely had a blue collar deportment to them. And it's like you show up every day, you work hard all day, you go home and you, you make things. You say, look at this. Oh, you wanted a drawer to pull out on the door to open the other side. Fine. I'll just make the door open the other side. But you have to show them the piece of furniture. Otherwise, they have no idea what it really is. And the people who can do that, who know how to construct things, uh, you know, I think that's the best way. There's a lot of theoreticians in this business. And, and they do it either because they don't know how or they're afraid of showing up or they're full of shit or a combination of all three. And, and you see it mostly, you see it a lot in pitches where you'll have, if you have two weeks to come up with the work, it's usually, if you have 10 working days to come up with the work, usually seven of them, there's nothing chosen, there's nothing on the wall. Um, and everybody's scrambling around and trying to stab everyone else in the back. Whereas some people are just coming out with idea after idea after idea, sometimes to their own disadvantage. But, you know, I've always been like, let's make something have a common ground to talk about because I don't know how you evaluate work without actually seeing work. That's the best way to do it, right? I, I would think, but you know how people are, though. They'll come in with a scrap and they'll, they'll say, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, we want Watson to talk. Like, what does that mean? I, I don't know what that means. What's, what, what are the characters like? You know, and or there's no script or there's a script that's 81 seconds long for a 30. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've Jim Mark, we've all done this. I'm trying not to name names. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what I think you just have to do the work. Yeah. Well, so speaking of that, doing the work, you write very early in the morning, correct? For the blog? Sometimes I write very early in the morning. Sometimes, you know, what I've found in my and and towards my waning days at Ogilvy, you know, a meeting ends at 2.15, another one doesn't start till 3.30, and I'd, I'd leave the meeting, oh, that pompous ass said this, and I'd write a blog post about that, and I have 30 minutes to do it in the middle of the day. So, you know, I find time, I find time during the day. I don't have like a dedicated time to write. Usually, you know, when something hits me, that's when I do it, you know. I think it must be like being a baseball scout in, in the Bush leagues, you know, because you're tuned in to looking for players, you'll see, you know, a kid stacking cans in the grocery store and you'll say, wow, look how he stretches. He'd be a great first baseman. You start seeing things places that other people might not th see because so much of your being is looking for that story, if you will. So your whole body is tuned into looking for things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I was going to say, by finding those little pockets to write, and when you get that little moment of inspiration, you go write it right away, or if it's in the morning before your day starts. Does that exercise, that, that act of writing something that you're excited about, you're having fun doing, it's your own thing, does that creative energy you get from that, does that feed right back into your work? So if you write in the morning and then you come into the office, are you sort of energized just from writing your own thing in the morning before you get into the the day-to-day -day work? Yeah, I, I think in two ways. One is, as you know, 
we're usually more productive when we feel under pressure. So I don't get paid for the blog, but you know, it's important for me to write something every day. So I could be doing other things. I could be technically working on a client, but I, but I, I, I need to get this thing at least in shape for me to work from. And that's borrowing time against something that pays me money. But it's also condensing the amount of time I have so I don't have any time to dilly-dally, really. I go from one thing to the next to the point where my wife says, don't you ever procrastinate? And of course I procrastinate. But I think there's a certain amount of confidence that happens when you, when you just write every day. It's like, I know I can get this done. I am not afraid. To your question earlier, don't you ever feel afraid that you're not going to have anything to write about, you know, you could say the same thing. You have to do an ad for, um, you know, Tino's Barbershop. Aren't you afraid you're, you're not going to have anything to do? And I say, no, you know what? I've filled this blank page 6,000 times. I'm going to fill it 6,001. I'm going to figure out something to do. I've always found that when I'm really busy, I'm much more productive than when I'm not. Um, so keeping yourself busy just kind of keeps things moving at a good pace. I mean, it's like you said, that sort of self-imposed pressure can really be beneficial. Yeah. You know, we're not writers like Dickens or Hemingway or something like that. We're kind of more, I, I always looked at myself a little more as a journalist. I have, a, I have pages to fill every day, you know, whether they're ad pages or blog pages or, or something else. I, I have pages to fill every day and I'm, I'm going to figure out how to do it. And you know, in, in a lot of the spaces I've been working in, which are technology and finance and stuff, a lot of it is, is merely translation from GORP to English, <laughs> um, which is a different kind of writing. It's not so much on imagination as it is on translation in a way. Yeah, it, it's it definitely it's, it is a whole other language. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, George, let's take a quick break for what else? Some ads. And we'll be right back. Mom, can we have toast tonight? You probably hear that a lot. But these days, when everyone's busier than ever, who has time to make a really good slice of toast? Stop by Maggie's House of Toast. Four varieties of toast, including our famous whole wheat, pumpernickel, white, and rye. Dear CEOs, CTOs, CMOs, and those aspiring to be chief officers of something, is your vocabulary cultivated with compelling potentialities? Are you repetitiously harnessing timely best practices in your everyday efforts? And be honest, are you proactively maximizing on-demand internal or organic sources to continually incept adaptive channels or appropriately administrate cross-functional intellectual capital to conveniently foster functionalized data? If you're looking to holistically integrate enterprise-wide core competencies and professionally communicate premium metrics to clients, stop by the Jargon Depot. Located next to Jim's Flim Flam in Shenanigans Bar and Pub everywhere. The Jargon Depot. If you can't beat them, bamboozle them. From being a wheel in the cog to fueling your blog. From helping clear your boss's mess up to acing stand-up. If your creativity spills over from the things you have to do to the things you want to do, the Sideshow is for you. Submit your entries to the only nonprofit that showcases your other creative sides to the world's top CCOs, CDs, GCDs, and more. We even have a free entry category for social good. If you're ready to zig when others zag, come see us at thesideshow.org. 
We've all heard about little green men on Mars and the evil creatures in War of the Worlds. But what about the Martians who aren't little, green, or evil at all? According to many 20th century scientists, our interplanetary neighbors were quite tall, up to 10 feet in height, with skinny legs, large feet, big chests, and superior intelligence. And they were desperately trying to contact us. Find out about these early Martians and much more in The Big Book of Mars by Mark Hartzman. Filled with entertaining history, pop culture ephemera, and interviews with NASA scientists, it's the most comprehensive look at our relationship with Mars. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Big Book of Mars is available from Quirk Books at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop.org, and wherever else you buy books. George, the people that you've referenced in your blog, you know, you've you've come at a few different people um, in the industry over the years. You mean I've been nasty about it? Uh, maybe a little bit. You know, do they yeah. ever do they ever reach out to you or react to the blogs? I know, like, you know, you've got a huge readership, and some of these people, I'm sure they know that you're talking about them. <laughs> do they say anything, or they just let it kind of go? You know, it's surprising. You know, when Mark Reed and I had the kind of knockdown dragout, um, I guess. Last summer, when he when he said, you know, I don't want people who harken back to the 80s. Um, and I had done because I knew I was I knew about a year ahead of time I was going to be fired. Uh, I mean, I saw it coming and I had gone through the uh, WPP annual report and I had found the data that said only two percent of their employees are over 60. So, uh, you know, you don't have to be. um as I think Elaine Bennis said on uh, Seinfeld, you don't have to be Sven Jolly to know you're going to get axed. So it's just a question of time. So, you know, when he made that statement, I was armed with 20 things that go, how can you say you're not uh, ageist? I mean, the data, the data says 20% of our population is over 60 and you've got less than 1% over 60. Explain. And it's a credit to me, and I don't usually say those words, but I think he, he decided he would rather deal with Cindy Gallup than with me. Uh, and he engaged her, you know, in the discussion because she she picked up on it. You know, a couple of times I've been very vocal about the agency's, um, I'm going to call it uh, bait and switch about diversity because I don't think they'll ultimately do anything because – to really address diversity, you have to spend money, and the agency business has no money to spend because when you're paying your C-suite $16 million a year, you can't take that much money out of an industry and expect to be able to invest in the industry. The economics don't work. So, you know, I wrote a long piece having remembered – because my, my, my father was in the industry um, – industry efforts in the 60s and, and then again in the 90s to bring in people of color – and, you know, I theorized that this was going to be a, um, a PR move and that, you know, outside of a few high profile hires, there wasn't going to be substantive change. I mean, they're not going to reach out to, you know, PS 152 in the Bronx and say, guys, here's where advertising is a legitimate career. They're not reaching out to historically black colleges and universities and talking about the efficacy of advertising as a career. So... Where are you going to get people? And, and I'm sorry, hiring people from Brazil is not the same as diversity because if you're, going to, if you're from Brazil and you're going to advertising, you're probably not from a favela. You're probably from a, a middle class or upper middle class background. That might be my, biased on my part. 
so I, I said flat out in my things, I'd love to talk to you about this. I'd love to have a discussion. Here's my phone number. And no, no one has reached out. And I, I think it's a little bit like, you know, General Electric poisoning the Hudson River or, you know, uh, Dow Chemical with uh, napalm. They'd rather not talk about it at all than, than have a discussion and get, get into trouble. So, um, no, no one's ever confronted me about it. And as a matter of fact, I was pretty bold when I was at Ogilvy. And only twice did I get yelled at. Uh, once I got yelled at by Jeff because I made fun of um, – it was when they told us we needed to be agile. And I, I did a whole post on the stupidity of agile. And the project manager who was propagating agile felt I was picking on her. So it was, it was a personal thing, she felt. Um, and then the second time was I had critiqued an ad that was done, a 15-second ad that was done by Ogilvy in um, Australia for Fanta. Um, and I guess Ogilvy New York was pitching Coca-Cola, and they were afraid it would taint the pitch. Am I allowed to say taint? Um, <laughs> they, they were afraid it would, it would sully the pitch. Um, so they, they got mad at me. I, I, I thought I was going to get into trouble, but nothing really happened. They just, people with C's in their title told me to pull it down. Did you pull it down or you just, I, 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 I took that offending piece off. Okay. Um, you know, so it was, it was a fantasy spot. It was so bad. And it was like, I understand we all have, we all do bad spots now and again. I do not understand like the lack of agency taste where you'd still promote the quality of the spot on, you know, uh, trade publications. You'd go on an agency spy and say, yeah, we're doing this and this and look at this spot. And Are you kidding? Just because you did a spot with so-and-so doesn't mean it's good. It sucked. I mean, you know, we've, we've all been there. We've all done bad spots, but you know, Just keep them quiet though. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, don't make it like it's, like even that frickin' stuff they did for Instagram at Ogilvy, I mean that was lamentable. And it's and I have friends who worked on it, you know, but I'm not going to pretend it's good because you did seven spots in seven days. That's the the customer doesn't care. It's a production you know, the, achievement. Yeah. yeah. And you know, in China, if we do, we're doing seven spots in seven days, they're doing seven spots in seven minutes. <laughs> so you know, whatever they're we're doing and saying it's fast, they're doing twenty four times faster. So uh, no, that's that's not unless you're an airline getting someplace fast probably doesn't matter. So at this point, you've built such a large readership, you've built your influence, like you said, this helps with your portfolio, right? People know your name, they know your writing. Yeah. It's a good compliment to your portfolio how is it uh how do you feel it's built your personal brand i mean like you said people know your name has this done more more for you than the advertising yeah you know i never thought certainly the first 55 years of my life i would never have said personal brand <laughs> you know because it's so uh, it's 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 trumpian you know it's it's like your work is your personal brand and you know, and that's always been enough. But now you have to kind of say to yourself and, you know, when you're on the other side of the table and you're looking for people, uh, even if your judgment is fantastic, you, you basically say, gee whiz, everybody's basically the once you're good, everybody's basically the same. You know, it's really hard to choose between um, I'm not a sports fan anymore, but 
even like, you know, great basketball players, they're all fantastic. I mean, maybe every once in a while there's a LeBron who's 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 better than everybody else. But most of the guys underneath that echelon, they're all pretty much parody products. So who do you go with? You go to the with the person who's either like prolific or they're funnier or they're, you know, somewhat famous. And yeah, so you have to do this shit now. I, w- I wish I didn't. I mean, the first 10 years I wrote my blog, I never promoted it. It was all found organically. And then I was like, ah, oh, shit, I have to promote this thing. I was, people were yelling at me to promote it. So um, that's when I did it. I, I felt guilty doing it, especially at a place like Ogilvy, where you had, you know, bona fide, brilliant people in the industry who were way better than you as, as a creative person. And it's like, well, you know, I, I don't feel good like banging my own drum when so-and-so isn't banging his. But if they're not going to do it, whatever. And uh, so I, I got over it, kind of. What advice would you give to other creative people in the industry who are looking to pursue projects outside of their advertising lives? Well, you know, I guess I had a little epiphany in my life, if you will. Um, I was at RGA for five years, uh, for better or worse. And I lost my job at 56. And, you know, when you get to be 56, or I lost my job at Ogilvy at 62, and you lose your job, you go, there is a really good chance I am never going to work again. Because the world does not need a 62 or 56 year old copywriter. And virtually everybody is cheaper than you. Everybody is less uh, opinionated. Everybody is less uh, cantankerous, let's say, or curmudgeonly, I guess is the big word uh, today. And so I had some tears because I'm nervous. And um, I was like, well, what I have to figure out is what I do, and, and I, I say this to people all the time, what do you do better than anyone else in the world? There's always going to be someone who can do a better spot. There's always someone who has an um, encyclopedic knowledge of you know, commercial production, or they have a great ear for music, or they, they know how to kiss ass in 12 languages, whatever it is. You know, and, and you can't compete with some of them. But you can look at yourself and say, well, what do I do better than anyone else? Well, you know, so I looked at myself and I said, well, and, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm a bricklayer, but I can churn it out. I can get the job done fast. I can get the job done well. I know how to, I know how to not be afraid to do work. And, and as you know, work for every hour of doing, there's 59 minutes of, oh, I don't want to do this now. Oh, I, I got this. To, I got, you know, I got expenses. I have timesheets. I got to do this. Oh, 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 Kelly needs some help on something. And you usually don't get down to work. Work is usually relegated to a small portion of your day. And so I said, well, what do I do better than anyone else? I know how to wrestle a job to the ground and get it done. And I think my blog, in a way, became an example of that, or I built it into an example of that. Like, I'm going to have something posted by 7 a.m. every morning, come rain or shine. And that became like, oh, gee whiz, if I need something done, man, I'm going to George. And that kind of became my brand. So that became my kind of trick to get hired at the age of 56 at Ogilvy and a pretty good job. 
so you know that but it was it was a calculus well it's one that that worked out really well for you and i think you know i looked at the the places i was looking and said well what do they need i'm going to make myself into that and say well here's what they need they need someone who can assimilate you know at the job we're talking about a shitload of information who can think on his feet has the right amount of sense of humor but can take something that's dry as you know dust and turn it into something decent and you know that same thing wouldn't have got me a job you know at droga or writing funny commercials uh, i don't know if there's any funny commercials left but you know writing funny commercials for a beer brand but if if that was the job i was going for i might have figured that out but the job I, I wanted was the IBM job. So I kind of made myself into what, is, what does IBM need? And you know, now you know, in my current permutation, it's kind of like, oh, there's a lot of client, there's a lot of agent, there's a lot of, I'm sorry, businesses and they don't really know what they sell. Well, I can help you figure it out. And that's what I do. You know, and it's not so much coming up with the ad, it's coming up with looking at the 68 PowerPoints and saying, well, here's what makes you unique. So you're helping them strategize and write and communicate, which is really what they need. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm older than everyone in the industry, but I grew up in an industry that didn't have planners. So there were always two types in my day of copywriters. There were the copywriter who, you know, the guys in the bar and the pretty girl looks at him and he goes over to talk to him and he trips and spills a drink on her blouse. And, you know, and that's the beer commercial. And then there was the people who could say, oh, well, Citibank has fraud protection. I, I have to figure out how to do a good commercial on fraud protection. That's a hard job. And I'm not I'm not saying that one is more important than the other. But a lot of companies now really don't know what business they're in or they don't know how to unparity themselves. Um, so every car company. Well, you know this better than I. You were in the car business for a long time. Every car commercial looks the same. Um, there's very few that are distinctive. Every technology commercial looks the same. Every every fast food commercial looks the same. There's very few that looks distinctive. So if you're going to get to the point where – I mean there's not even – if you think about probably around the time you came to New York or a little earlier – you know, there was something like Sam Breakstone or Frank Perdue. They're selling a parody product, you know, cottage cheese or chicken. But they, they gave it a personality. We don't really do that anymore. I mean, I don't know what the personality difference is between Popeyes and Bojangles. It's such a combination of the creatives being able to do that job and the clients being brave enough to want it, to, to take a stand and have a voice and not want to be safe and mixed in with all the rest. Cause you're right. So much stuff seems the same. And sometimes clients, you know, they don't know if they're want to take that chance. And if they do, and you got the creative people, then you get something great. But if you really want to depress yourself, you know, I don't see a lot of ads on, on Instagram or anything like that, but occasionally I'll see a Porsche ad cause I like cars. I'm not buying a Porsche, but I, I like cars and you'll see something on like the new, you know, the Porsche is some of the most beautiful cars in the world. And you'll see the, and, and you know enough about cars to know how, how, how stupid this is. It's uh, the silky command of Porsche's uh, powerful four-cylinder engine. And it's like to a Porsche person, having a four-cylinder engine is almost like heresy. It, you know, but the client doesn't know that four-cylinders doesn't mean the same thing it did when you and I were growing up, which, you know, four-cylinder would have been a Hugo. 
Um, it, it doesn't, you don't, but you don't trumpet four cylinders unless you, we're in a three cylinder world and we're not yet. And, but I don't think anyone knows anything about automobiles. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't even get, you know, if you go back to some of my favorite ads ever, like Helmut Krohn did for Porsche, you know, the Porsche technical series where it talks about, you know, torque and G-forces and coefficient of drag and shit like that. Nobody really cared. Nobody cared then. Nobody cares now. But you believed it was a better car or the spirit of I was telling my wife the other day, the spirit of the um, ad, I guess, I think Shiat did or maybe Fallon for Porsche. You know, nobody no, nobody grew up dreaming someday of driving a Mitsubishi or a Nissan, you know, for the 911. And it's like all that's gone. People don't have the depth of knowledge about the brands anymore, either clients, C-level or agency to really do something effective. And you have CMOs going, well, no one's going to read. Well, no, it's, it's my job to make people read. Of course, no one's going to read if it's not interesting. <laughs> I mean, this is true. It, is that it goes with I everything? Mean, I, I guarantee you, you know, I'm a big Homer fan, like Iliad and the Odyssey. I guarantee you there are 75 other blind poets walking around Ithaca <laughs> going, hey, hey, you want to hear a story? I'll tell you a story. It didn't last. Homer did okay. <laughs> you know, like he figured it out. But it, it, it's only because it was interesting. I mean, it's, it's not like, oh, yeah, well, people then were interested in, in, in 40,000-word poems. No, they weren't. They were busy, too. They had a sacrifice to Apollo. They, they had all <laughs> kinds. Of, they had to turn into a swan. They had all kinds of shit they had to do. Now I'm interested in the story of these 75 other blind poets walking around but, but, and but, what but, their stories but, were. But, but I mean, I, I have a book for you if you want it. But, but, it, but you know it's got to be true. It's not like yeah. there, was, there was one epic poet walking around and it happened to be Homer. It's a good thing he was good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing he was good. Otherwise, we'd be fucked. There, but, you know, there were so many things. There had to be. There, I mean, there had to be. Like, I don't watch TV, you know. But even in this, like, so-called renaissance, half the things people watch, ah, eh, that wasn't too good. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like Better Call Saul, but nah, it wasn't as good. You know, so it's like, yeah, you know, 30 years, we'll remember Breaking Bad or something. We're not going to remember all these other shows. So my point is, nobody's ever wanted to read. You have to make it readable. Yeah. Or watch or listen or whatever. Like to this podcast, for instance. <laughs> Thanks again for doing this podcast, and hopefully we get lots of people to listen to it. (laughs) Well, let me know. I hope I didn't bore everyone. (laughs) I don't think so. Well, it was great to talk to you and hear all of your experiences and your thoughts, and I am sure many other people are looking forward to your post tomorrow morning. Okay. Okay. Well, thank thank you, Mark. It's good talking to you, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to Besides Ads, and thank you, George Tannenbaum. We'll end appropriately with an ad for him. George's blog can be found at adh.blogspot.com or posted across social media. Just follow him on LinkedIn or on Twitter where he's at georget20 and see his ad work at georgetannenbaum.com. Besides ads is brought to you by me, Mark Hartsman. You can see my work at markhartsman.com or follow me on LinkedIn. The theme song was written by Steffi Copeland, who is an ACD writer currently based in Toronto. The logo was designed by Rich Wallace, a GCD art director. 
You can see his work at richwallace.myportfolio.com. And additional editing and sound design was done by James Archer. If you like Besides Ads, tell your friends about it. Share it on social, make a TV campaign. You know what to do, you're ad people. And if you want to run an ad, visit BesidesAds.com for details. We also happily accept donations. Until next time, go make something.